Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, a bouncing baby giant. For the first time, researchers see a sperm whale give birth. About an hour after we were with them, there was this, you know, enormous gush of blood. Uh, and then we saw these beautiful, tiny little floppy flukes of the, of the new baby who had just been born. And can we still prevent forest fires? Do we have a strategy to control more frequent and intense fires? We attempted to stop fires in every place that we could detect and then suppress them, making the forest more susceptible to larger and more severe fires. Plus, a robot powered by explosions, ship exhaust and climate change, and an octopus's garden deep in the sea. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. July 8th, 2023 began like any other day for Canadian whale biologist Shane Garrow. He and his team were sailing off the coast of the eastern Caribbean island of Dominica, looking for sperm whales. It's part of their work studying whale communication. Dr. Garrow is a whale biologist at Carleton University in Ottawa and the lead biologist for Project SETI, which stands for the Cetacean Translation Initiative. So their goal that day, and every other day that they're out on the water, is to listen and record the sperm whales. Ultimately, they want to translate what the whales are saying with their underwater vocalizations. Ping-like clicks that sound counterintuitively unimpressive, coming from such huge beasts. Now, Dr. Garrow has spent thousands of hours in the company of these whales, He's known some of them longer than his own children. But that day, he and his crew witnessed something that nobody's ever documented before. The result of 18 months of hard maternal gestation. We'll let Dr. Garrow pick up the story from there. Dr. Garrow, welcome back to our program. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so you're out watching and listening to the sperm whales. Tell me what was happening that day when you realized something unusual was taking place. Yeah, it was kind of an unbelievable morning. We had been with the whales for about an hour, and they were all grouped up, the entire family together, Um, you know, about 11 animals, and it's grandmothers, mothers, and their daughters all together. And we thought they were being quiet and maybe a little bit defensive because there were pilot whales around, uh, and they have been known to harass sperm whales. Uh, but as it turned out, you know, about an hour after we were with them, there was this, you know, enormous gush of blood. Uh, and then we saw these beautiful, tiny little floppy flukes of the of the new baby who had just been born. It was, uh, it was, I mean, it was surreal. That's in insane. Here, right at the front. She's kicking. She's, she's alive. She's, she's alive. alive. She's alive. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my, oh my God. God. Oh, my, oh my God. God. Oh my God. 
There was a lot of, you know, great <laughs> adjectives. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, 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 take me through that. I mean, what does, uh, you know, seeing a baby whale being born actually look like? What do they do? Well, it was way more active than I thought. Uh, these were animals that were rolling around and pushing into each other. And, of course, there was, you know, cacophony of sounds underwater. Um, but I sort of expected it to be more relaxed. But the little one was sort of lifted out of the water on the noses of, of its moms and, and aunties. And grand, her grandmother was also there and, uh, and pushed around. And the, and the baby was actually really limp. At first, I sort of thought that maybe she was stillborn because uh, they were so uh, floppy. I, I kept saying floppy in, in the morning that it happened. And it took us, I'd say, a few minutes to realize that, no, no, she's breathing on her own and 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 uh, and kicking and moving on their own. Just because the animals were, you know, rolling around. These are animals the size of a school bus, you know, that weigh <laughs> as much as five or ten of them. And so, uh, you know, to have them all sort of writhing around, sort of like spinning spaghetti around your fork uh, so elegantly and gracefully in the ocean was pretty unbelievable. But to have the little tiny baby, only minutes old, sort of squashed in and among that, I guess, I don't know what I really expected, but I, I didn't expect it to be so vigorous, you know. <laughs> now, you say little tiny baby. How, how large is it? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We're still working on getting an accurate measurement because we had, you know, for the very first time, we recorded this moment from multiple drones and, and underwater uh, hydrophones, which is an underwater microphone. But, you know, the the average baby is somewhere between, you know, three to five meters long and maybe as much of a ton. So this is a, a giant <laughs> baby, really. <laughs> Now, you said that initially you saw blood and there were pilot whales around. So did, what, what, what went through your mind when you saw that? I mean, immediate concern. At first, we thought it was the pilot whales attacking. We'd never seen a successful pilot whale hunt of a baby sperm whale. They come in, they harass them, they bother them. Maybe they get some new scratches, but we've never seen one be taken. But when we saw the blood and then the immediate physical response of all of the other females... Uh, we were worried that that's what it was until we saw the the new baby there. Uh, and then it was about 45 minutes or more before the, the pilot whales actually showed up and showed any interest in what was going on. Um, and so then, of course, the boat went from sort of jubilation and excitement to, you know, very stressed and, and worried for the survival of the little one. A few hours later, the calf was still around and, and playing with its uh, uh, cousins and its mom. So we know that the calf survived, but there were a few hours where everyone was, you know, very tense about what might happen next. Now, you, you're out there to study whale communications. So what did all of this sound like? What noises were the whales making during all of this activity? Yeah, so sperm whales talk to each other by these patterns of clicks that we call codas. It's kind of like a Morse code system, different clicks and pauses. And it went from relatively quiet to, you know, 11 animals all talking at the same time. And 
Now, now to be clear, being a sperm whale, that's not rude. Like animals often uh, mirror each other and overlap their calls. But this was, uh, you know, it's hard not to interpret it as some kind of celebration or jubilance because it was it went from relatively quiet and a few animals speaking to everyone making noise and rolling around and touching each other. I mean, it's hard not to see it as a celebration, just like just like us. <laughs> now you talk about how the uh, the females gathered together to keep the baby up, uh, to, to, to hold it up. There's that phrase, you know, it takes a community to raise a child. Is that true with these whales as well? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, sperm whale society is based on females living together, caring for each other's babies, uh, and defending them communally. And I think we saw all of that happen in, in the scale of an hour or so in, in this, this sort of event. Uh, you know, we've known this family for... Uh, since the beginning of the project in 2005. And uh, so we know that grandma was there and mom was there and the baby's new half-sister was there. uh, And all of them were participating in this. And even interestingly, this teenage male who should be on his way out to sort of transition from his hyper-social youth to this very solitary, mature male sperm whale, but he was there invested in all of this. So it was... uh, you know, it was a pretty momentous day for them, let alone for us. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had the surprise of seeing a whale birth, but you were really there to study whale communication. So how does this all fit into your SETI project? Well, it's a remarkable data set now, right? I mean, we have this very specific behavioral context uh, of what happened and what they were likely to be talking about. But also it gives us this opportunity now to follow this little one as as they acquire their, their natal dialect, right? Because the animals that live in the Caribbean use different patterns than animals that speak to the sperm whale anywhere else in the world. Uh, and so that sort of ontogeny of learning sperm whale, which is what we're hoping to do, will be happening in real life for this little one as well. So what's your ultimate goal? Are, are you going to try to uh, translate what they say and, as Dr. Doolittle said, talk to the animals? Well, I think that's something that's been fascinating people for hundreds of years. But I think, you know, the real intent behind SETI is is to listen and learn from animals. And I think what's most important from me is that, you know, these animals are fundamentally different than us. They're the size of a school bus. You know, they've never seen a tree. Most of their world is dark. You know, there's going to be something that our primate brain can't understand about what it means to be a whale. But when we do find overlaps, when we do find similarities between what's important for them to talk about and what's important for us to talk about, uh, that's where I think we're going to start learning something about fundamentally what's important to why we're all here. Dr. Garrell, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Shane Garrow is a whale biologist at Carleton University in Ottawa and the lead biologist for Project SETI, the Cetacean Translation Initiative. You can see some of the video of the birth and the new calf on our website at cbc.ca slash quirks. Is that what you imagine a robot sounds like? Buzzing and whining of electric motors moving its metal limbs? Well, maybe. But engineer Cameron Aubin and his colleagues are designing a new robot that might sound more like this. 
Well, maybe not exactly like that, but maybe a little. Because Aubin and his team have developed a miniature robot powered by combustion. Essentially, the same kinds of harnessed explosions that we use to run our cars and motorbikes. Dr. Aubin is a postdoctoral associate in the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Dr. Aubin, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, let's begin with your robot. How small is it? It's, uh, well, we, we like to use the term insect scale. So it's about 2.9 centimeters long. It's about half that in height. Uh, it's a quadruped, so it's got four little legs, and it weighs 1.6 grams. We try to find a cute way to, like, explain to layman's how light that is, and uh, we've decided that it's it's slightly less than the weight of your average gummy bear. <laughs> and you say it has four legs, so what's it actually look like? When viewed from above, it kind of looks like the letter H. And at sort of the corners of the vertical strokes of the letter H, you have these four squat little legs. And that's how it uh, leaps or crawls or moves around. Well, why did you decide to make a robot powered by combustion rather than other more traditional ways? It has to do with how robots at this scale are limited largely by physics and, and by scaling laws. And so you don't see things like pumps, things like motors, things like engines actuating robots at this scale because just shrinking them down, it, the physics doesn't seem to work out. And so you see a lot of bespoke actuators, sort of kooky looking, you know, non-traditional actuators, things that make these robots move. And a lot of them tend to be pretty low force and low energy density and low power. And what that means is that they don't really come close to approximating the performance of real insects. And we've all like swatted at flies before and chased creepy crawlies around the house and things like that. We know how agile insects can be. We've all heard that ants can lift, you know, multiple times their body weight, but robots at the scale really struggle to do that. Using chemical fuels and using combustion has allowed us to sort of bridge that performance gap. Okay, when I think of a combustion engine, I think of something like a, a big V8 that has all kinds of pistons and valves and cams and everything in it to work. Take me through your robot. How does it actually work to use combustion? So the robot can be thought of as, I guess it's really a four-cylinder robot, uh, and that's because it has these four legs. And so the robot, I mentioned it's kind of shaped like the letter H. So the legs of that capital letter H are hollow combustion chambers, and they're attached, but they're separate. So there's two chambers, one on the left side, one on the right side. And we feed uh, through very thin tubing, catheter tubing, as it were, methane and oxygen directly into these chambers inside the robot. And then uh, wires attached to a high voltage source create a, a quick hot spark, and that causes combustion, it causes a, a very tiny explosion that propagates along the legs of that H into the legs, and the increase in heat and the expansion of gases causes an inflation of this sort of membrane that we have on the legs, and that's what causes the robot to pop up in the air. Uh, so we're, we're really very quickly inflating balloons with, with explosions, as it were. And by quickly, I mean less than half a millisecond. So you really need something like a high-speed camera to really appreciate how fast we're moving here. Wow. So what does it cause the robot to jump when that happens? It does. The, the cool thing is that we can actually, on command, change the fuel chemistry 
or the speed at which we're sparking to create different movement behaviors. So if we spark really, really quickly and we use just a little bit of fuel, the robot will sort of uh, scuttle along the ground and kind of vibrate along the ground. Or if we use a lot of fuel and just one big spark, uh, it'll do this very large leap and it can leap up to 60 centimeters. A reminder that the robot's only about three centimeters long. So it's quite a distance for something that size. Um, and we can do all sorts of in-between in behaviors. We can decide to just combust in one half of the robot, and that'll turn the robot to the side. So if we just combust in the left half, it'll turn to the right, and vice versa. And so that allows us to steer it as well. Wow. Now, you say that you uh, you use catheters to get your methane fuel into the combustion chamber, but after the explosion, how do you get the exhaust gases out? Well, the venting happens passively, and this is kind of a cool phenomenon that we've discovered where because we're combusting such a small amount of gas, think like 10 to 20 microliters of methane, the combustion is contained right within the chamber, and that means we don't need any valves to control exhaust. And so we literally just put some holes in the back of it, and the exhaust just leaves the holes. <laughs> Does it make a sound? It does, yeah. It makes a, a, a very pleasant popping noise. If you're at low frequency, you can really ramp it up and make it um, quite a bit louder. Um, we've needed earplugs before for some of the more intense operations that we've used. Um, a lot of people like to say when they first see it, oh, this would be a really cool, like, uh, you know, a surveillance type of robot. And I say, no, people would hear this coming a mile away. Now, what do you imagine something like this being used for? So one of the future things that we think this technology could actually be used for uh, is taking these actuators, these little combustion actuators that we've created, and putting them in series to create bundles that are a lot like human muscle fibers. Uh, and we can even use this potentially in large-scale robots. So then we have something that's you know allowing for very quick kilonewton levels of force and actuation you know, at very high speeds. Uh, so th there's lots of possibilities with this technology, really. Now, you say you were inspired by insects and how an ant can lift many times its own weight. Did you equal the insects? Is your robot as strong as an ant? Uh, it depends on the type of ant. So we're better than some <laughs> species and we're worse than others. So ants can lift roughly 50 times their own body weight at, at most. The record is the dung beetle, I believe, can really lift like a thousand times its body weight or something. But things like beetles and cockroaches sort of are in the realm between 10 to 50 times their body weight. We did 22 times body weight. So, yeah, I think we're I think we're competitive with insects. <laughs> and maybe uh, one other step you want to add is to uh, put a muffler on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get right on that, Bob. <laughs> Dr. Aubin, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Cameron Aubin is a postdoctoral associate in the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. They say no good deed goes unpunished which is why it perhaps shouldn't be surprising that a recent effort to reduce ship pollution may have inadvertently sped up ocean warming. A few years ago, the United Nations International Maritime Organization, or IMO, set new rules aimed at limiting air pollution by commercial ships. Emissions from these ships release sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which could be harmful to the health of people living near busy shipping routes. 
the new rules worked. Since 2020, global emissions of sulfur dioxide from shipping have dropped significantly. But as a surprising result, so did marine cloud cover. And in the short term, this sped up global warming. Michael Diamond is one of the scientists who studied these effects. He's an atmospheric scientist and an assistant professor at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. First of all, what is the connection between the exhaust coming out of ships and clouds? At the center of every cloud particle, there's a little speck of dust or smoke or a sulfur particle like we have from these ships that actually help that cloud droplet form. And how many droplets these clouds are actually made up of winds up being really important for how bright or reflective that cloud is when we're thinking about sunlight. So if you're out over the open ocean, nothing around for miles and miles, the only little seed particles, we call them aerosols, suspended um, things in the atmosphere that might be around to help seed those clouds would be maybe some some sea salt that the winds pick up from ocean from the ocean spray, maybe maybe some little bit of organics or something there, but not much. So imagine you're now tasked with building a cloud. You have to build that cloud and you have some amount of water. And the only way you can do it is you could distribute it over a relatively small number of relatively big droplets if you want to use all of that liquid. Now this ship comes through and the ship is just spewing out these cloud seeds from its smokestack, from this pollution. Now to build the same cloud, what you could do is you could spread that water out over a really large number of very small droplets. And if you have some amount of liquid water to work with, that's much more efficient for increasing what we call the effective surface area of the cloud. And that makes that cloud reflect more sunlight that otherwise would have been absorbed by the ocean and by the earth. So that produces a cooling effect. Wow. So the the pollution from the ships is seeding clouds, making clouds that that get up over the ocean and they reflect light off into space. How did you actually go about measuring the effect of the uh, ship pollution on cloud formation? Yeah. So we're doing this from satellites looking down at the earth. But instead of just looking at visible light, we're looking at light in different wavelengths. So we're looking at just red colors and just blue colors, and then just some colors the eye can't see in what we call the near-infrared wavelengths. And we can use the relationship between the amount of light that the satellite sees at these different wavelengths of light to infer things about the cloud properties. Most relevant for us, how bright those clouds are and what the size of the cloud droplets are that are forming. Do these clouds from ships look different from normal clouds? They do, and you can actually see this from satellites that orbit the Earth, or even if you're an astronaut on the International Space Station, you can see this just looking down, and we have these lines of brighter clouds going out over the ocean. And if you knew where the ships were, you could go and you can trace each of those lines back to the smokestack of an individual ship. Wow. What then uh, did this show about the effect of the new regulations on reducing sulfur dioxide from the ships? So somewhat to our surprise, we're already seeing fairly large changes in clouds over the ocean where we have this biggest amount of shipping traffic. And we have a lot of these in the North Atlantic and North Pacific, and they're going every which way between these major cities. So those are really hard to study because we don't have any control group, right? We don't have any clouds nearby that are not affected by shipping. But if we go to the Southern Hemisphere 
if we look at this big shipping corridor, this big shipping superhighway between Europe and North Africa um, and South Africa on through to Asia, there's just one kind of big corridor line of shipping with areas on either side that are relatively undisturbed by the ships. And it turns out that the winds in this area also help play a role, keeping the pollution from those ships relatively constrained to that shipping superhighway. So what we could do is we could look at the cloud properties in that corridor and compare it to cloud properties outside that corridor and get a estimate of what we think the clouds would have looked like without that shipping. And before these regulations went into effect, we saw a big decrease in the size of the cloud droplets that would form in the shipping corridor. And we saw that brighter clouds were forming in the shipping corridor than if there was no shipping. With the new regulations, even with just the three years we have of those new regulations, what we're seeing is that that effect has gone away. And that means a warming effect on the climate. Well, we'll take me through that. How, is this that the sunlight's getting through to the ocean more? Yeah, exactly. So before the clouds were very efficient at reflecting sunlight, and now they're a little bit less efficient at reflecting that sunlight, which means more of that sunlight's being absorbed at the ocean, and then that heat through the atmospheric circulation is getting all around the world. This past summer, average ocean surface temperatures broke some records. Could the reduced cloud cover from ships be contributing to this? Yeah, so even though we don't expect globally the temperature records to be that influenced by the shipping regulations in specific regions where there's a lot of shipping, like the North Atlantic and North Pacific, which have seen some pretty big increases in in warming in the recent year, that could be a much bigger player regionally in those locations because shipping is so concentrated in those regions. And we also believe those regions have clouds that are very susceptible to being brightened by these these pollution particles from the ships. Some people have suggested that we might offset global warming by intentionally putting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, the so-called geoengineering. And here you found that we already did an accidental experiment that proved that it actually works. So do you think this is evidence that we could do geoengineering on a larger scale? The effect we see from the ships is limited evidence that if we wanted to create a cooling effect on purpose, we would have some ability to. And there's been a proposal called marine cloud brightening to go out and recreate this effect that we're accidentally doing with ships and sulfur, which is a harmful air pollutant, but instead doing it with natural sea salt aerosol that you would get from spraying ocean water that might be more environmentally benign. Scientists have also proposed that instead of putting aerosols or more sulfur down here in the troposphere where humans live and where most of what we consider weather takes place, we can instead put it really high up in the atmosphere, in the stratosphere, which is a very stable level high in the atmosphere where the ozone layer is, where aerosol down here, like the aerosol that the ship emit, only lives in the atmosphere for days to a week maybe, versus it could live for a year or two in the stratosphere before it gets removed and reflect sunlight there without having as big an effect on public health. So I think what we've seen is that we have some ability to create a cooling effect, but what we don't yet know is what would the other unintended consequences be in terms of changing the atmospheric circulation, in terms of maybe even compensating effects on other clouds. If you cool in one place, are you going to have some compensation where it warms in another place 
um, those questions are still unanswered. Dr. Diamond, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Michael Diamond is an assistant professor in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science at Florida State University. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. Would you like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden? Well, that's where Dr. Rachel Lauer, a hydrogeologist from the University of Calgary, found herself this summer during three weeks aboard a research vessel off Costa Rica. It was a follow-up expedition to a discovery made a decade ago with a multidisciplinary team of researchers. They were studying a unique ecosystem of underwater volcanoes, which surprisingly provide a home and never-before-seen nursery for baby octopus. Dr. Lauer, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. It is great to be here. Thanks for that introduction. So where did you do your research this summer? So this summer, I was fortunate to be invited to sail with an amazing team of researchers, policymakers, and artists off the coast of Costa Rica in the Pacific Ocean, about 100 to 150 kilometers offshore in the what is known as the deep ocean. So we're talking about depths greater than or around 3,000 meters water depth. And in this particular location, there are 12 mapped seamounts or outcrops that are tiny little volcanoes that stick up above the sediments. Now you call these seamounts little volcanoes. How big are they? That's a good question. Um, the term seamount is technically describing things that are sticking up about a thousand meters or more. Um, But yeah, these are all presumably formed near the ocean ridges, near where the crust was formed itself. And over the course of the lifetime of one of these seamounts, the crust is covered in so much sediment that they really provide the only pathway for water to get in and out of the crust. And as a result, there are places that we can look to find hotspots of biodiversity. Well, tell me about the octopus. What's the environment got to do with that? Yeah, I mean, the the original discovery, which was in 2013, we were headed there to sample pristine fluids that are coming out of the Earth's crust. And that's important for microbiologists and geochemists because we know there's a, a community of microbes that are living in the crust and are the sort of collective goal was to understand how they survive. And uh, it was a completely serendipitous discovery that we get there, see it with our own eyes, and it happens to be covered in octopus. And again, there were microbiologists, geochemists, and hydrogeologists, no biologists (laughs) on that cruise. So it was baffling to us, of course, not being biologists, And it was a secondary discovery, obviously. We weren't looking to find them, but there they were. How many? Then there was about probably 100 that we saw. When we came back, we saw probably double that population. 
Now, why do you think the octopus were in that particular region? That is a great question. And a biologist who was with us on this cruise noted that they should not be there. These are solitary creatures. They do not tend to cluster in the way that we observe them. And perhaps more importantly, there was concern that the eggs that we saw lining the cracks of this shimmering water that was coming out, this 10 degree water, um, there was concern that there was not enough oxygen in that water to properly incubate those eggs. And it was posited that these were doomed octopus, that they should not be there evolutionarily. They had made a bad decision and it was hypothesized that they would not be successful in using this as a breeding ground for that reason. And it turns out when we came back, there were probably double the amount. Um, So now the question is, is the temperature that's well above background temperature for these depths, is that somehow enhancing um, the capacity of these octopus to incubate their eggs in this system? Are there chemicals within the fluids that are coming out that are advantageous, or even microbes within those waters that are um, seeping out of the crust? Are those somehow advantageous to this particular species? So were these octopus, were they just kind of huddled around the hot spring like an oasis? Yeah, they were in the brooding position. So their arms are sort of wrapped around them, meaning that they are in a position where they can easily protect their eggs. It turns out that octopus spend several years to four years at the end of their lives just protecting the clutch of eggs that they lay. Um, So they're effectively dying as a result of um, this being their last stage of life where they are just solely protecting those eggs. They're not eating, they're not sleeping, they are just protecting their eggs. Yeah, they were lining the cracks. It was uh, like a maternity spa is what it looked like, just hundreds (laughs) of octopus protecting their eggs from predators. Uh, (laughs) I'm just curious, what's it like for you as a hydrogeologist to become suddenly well-versed in octopus? <laughs> Hardly well versed. Um, yeah, I think for me that that was the best part of this cruise. I've done nine or ten cruises prior to this one and never been so fully immersed in the science of other people. Um, there was a, a genuine desire among all of us to understand what each other was working on, how how all of our work informed each other's work. It's important to work across those disciplines. So it was really exciting. And I learned a ton. I'm, I am have a lot more to learn. Of course, I'm going to enroll in a marine biology course. I've seen things I, I never thought possible. And it's it's truly mind blowing some of the creatures that we were able to see in the in the live feed as a function of each of those dives. Well, tell me about some of the other creatures you saw besides the octopus. Oh, gosh. Uh, we saw siphonophores. We saw tripod fish. A cockatoo squid. I mean, some of the imagery, I, I'm posting it to family and friends. People were in disbelief that what I was sending them were actual photos because they just look insane. And some of the adaptations that have been developed to, to survive and thrive in no light and at incredible pressures and depths are just truly mind blowing. Mm. And certainly not something that, you know, someone who generally just thinks about physics and math and and flow and you know, equations is, is um, yeah, a little bit like a fish out of water when you <laughs> actually find yourself surrounded by biologists, but they were enormously helpful. 
You, you talked about your team as a mixed bag of scientists from different disciplines. You even mentioned artists. Uh, tell me more about that. What, what was that team like and, and to work together? Oh, it was great. Definitely the the most seamless integration of all of those disciplines that I've ever experienced. And it was mostly Costa Ricans, which I think is also really significant for this type of work is to have that kind of representation from the home country. Costa Rica is mostly deep ocean. It is over 90% of the country is represented by their deep ocean. So they're really champions and ambassadors for how we uh, become stewards of that type of resource. Dr. Laura, thank you so much for your time. Bob, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Rachel Lauer is a hydrogeologist from the University of Calgary. It only takes a careless moment to turn this... Let forest fires be your fault. Make sure your fire is dead out. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Ah, uh, that takes me back. Remember Smokey the Bear on those old TV public service announcements warning us to properly take care with our campfires with that classic tagline, Only you can prevent forest fires. Well, the thing is, that may not be true anymore. Our climate is warmer. Wildfires are becoming more frequent, more intense, and harder to control. We're moving into uncharted territory, one where the word unprecedented is getting thrown around a lot. It is a unprecedented, record-breaking fire season. Canada's fire authorities have never seen anything like it. It was like a hundred years of firefighting all at once. An early sign of an unprecedented summer. Edmonton and Calgary set new annual records for smoke hours. It's not a new normal, it's a continuously worsening situation. The summer of 2023 delivered up the most destructive wildfire season our country has ever seen. So, given what we're fighting, can we still prevent forest fires? And if we can, do we want to? That seems like a no-brainer. But paradoxically, our efforts to control wildfire in the past might be contributing to the fire catastrophes we're experiencing now. And this is costing us in many ways. Firefighting isn't cheap, in money or, tragically, lives. And whole communities are being disrupted, even incinerated. And it's likely to get even worse. Can we prepare for this unprecedented future? Lori Daniels has been thinking a lot about that question. She's a professor of forest ecology and the head of the Tree Ring Lab at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Daniels, hello and welcome to our program. Bob, it's wonderful to be here with you. Now, again, the word we're using for this summer of fire is unprecedented. What created this vulnerability in the forests? Well, certainly we know that it's a combination of factors. There were weather and climate factors that set the stage for this summer, but we also know that the longer-term impacts about how we've been managing our forests and how we've been managing wildfires are equally important when we understand 
the mix of factors that drove these wildfires across our country. Much of the area is boreal forest where high severity fires are part of the normal way in which ecosystems functioned. However, we're seeing in those ecosystems that where we've put out fires in the past, we've created more homogeneous landscapes where fire can spread and build energy and become larger and more impactful, putting communities that are embedded in those forests at risk. Hmm. Similarly, in our dry forests in southern British Columbia, it used to be that low severity fires, surface fires, would burn through the understory and kind of clean up the fuels. And we know from tree ring studies that those fires used to burn once every 10 to 25 years on a very short cycle. But the majority of the trees would survive. We've been putting out those surface fires very effectively for the last century. That's allowed the forests to change. Grasslands have become woodlands, woodlands have become forests, and the forests have a higher density of trees within them today. So when fires start, they don't burn as that low severity underburn. They burn as crown fires that spread up into the tops of the trees and then spread treetop to treetop with greater energy and greater effects. That's kind of uh, odd to hear that because we've been putting forest fires out in the past, we're causing more forest fires now. We call that the fire suppression paradox. We attempted to stop fires in every place that we could detect and then suppress them. And we've become very good at that with our modern technologies, but so good, in fact, that we've begun to change these ecosystems, making the forest more susceptible to larger and more severe fires. The double paradox is that, in fact, the solution is to allow more fire back on the landscape and to use either prescribed burning or management that emulates prescribed burning in order to restore those ecosystems and to make them more resistant to climate change and its direct and indirect impacts, including these extreme wildfires we're experiencing. And I guess it makes sense to do those prescribed burns before fire season begins so they, they don't get out of control. I do it when it's cooler. Absolutely. Those fires occur in the spring and in the fall, in the shoulder seasons, when you have dry enough conditions for fire to spread, but not hot enough conditions or deep enough drought for the fire intensity to build up. We also know that many communities are embedded in forests across Canada. And so we are finding that actually going in and thinning out the smallest trees, but leaving the big fire resistant trees with thick bark that are adapted to surface fire, leaving them intact to create shade and cooler conditions, but removing all the fine fuels, the small trees and the debris down on the ground is helping to reduce fuel loads and make communities more resilient and more resistant to fire. Mm-hmm. Now we have another player here and that's the forestry industry. Do we actually need to change our forests to make them more fire resistant? What, what needs to be done there? Yeah, so the forest industry, and I'll use British Columbia again as my example because this is the community with whom I work and where I teach. The forest industry is a really critically important player. They're both being impacted by these big fires. It's costing them literally millions and tens of millions of dollars in lost opportunities in terms of sustainable forest management. 
much of our forest management currently is at patch levels, one patch at a time, where we harvest the trees, we regenerate and grow back trees. And we've kind of thought that that was sufficient to maintain the forest and be sustainable for timber production. But we're realizing now many of the choices that we've made clear-cut harvesting, the amount of debris that is left behind, our focus on needle leaf trees being regenerated to be the next timber supply, while trying to control broadleaf shrubs and herbs that are more resistant and resilient to fire, those are adding up to have cumulative effects across the landscape that make our landscapes more vulnerable to fire. So rethinking at the landscape level, strategic planning about where we harvest and how we harvest. In some ecosystems, it would be better to not be using clear-cut harvesting, but to leave trees resilient, thick-barked, large trees behind to create shade and allow regeneration of the forest. Um, making sure that we have broadleaf forest and mixed broadleaf needleleaf forests across our landscapes to be resilient to fire and thinking also on a longer term so that we have multiple decades of planning in terms of how the forest will change through time to ensure that there's fuel breaks and fire fences on our landscapes into the future. Well, you're talking about uh, turning the forest into a more natural landscape that will be resistant to fires, but in the context of climate change, is that really enough to protect us? Frankly, I had thought that this would be problems that the next generation of forest ecologists, fire managers, forest managers would be taking care of in 2050 to 2080. So the time is now for us to be acting and to act as quickly as possible. And that urgency is being brought upon us by climate change. Now, you've talked a lot about British Columbia, where we've increased vulnerability with forest management, but... We've had massive fires in natural boreal forests like those in the Northwest Territories. How do we deal with those environments? Oh, well, this is definitely the footprint of climate change. With these heat domes, I think of the Northwest Territories with temperatures upwards of 35 plus degrees Celsius in advance of these extreme wildfires this summer. Those types of temperatures dry out the forests, not just the above ground plants. The soils in many of our boreal systems are organic soils, the peat mosses. That forest floor is drying and becoming vulnerable to fire and we see it burning. It leaves a blackened surface. We know black surfaces like a black t-shirt on a warm day will absorb the sunlight, absorb that heat energy, heating the soils, and there's great concerns about the impacts to the semi-permanent and permanent permafrost down below. And then it's unclear whether those ecosystems can recover. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. Laurie Daniels is a professor of forest ecology and the head of the Tree Ring Lab at the University of British Columbia. Now, there are a lot of uncertainties around our ability to protect ourselves from these more intense wildfires we've been experiencing. There are things we can do in our more southerly forests to minimize our future wildfire vulnerability. But what about the boreal forests of the north, the forests that cover nearly 60% of Canada? That's something Dr. Jennifer Baltzer has been investigating. 
She's a professor in forest ecology and the Canada Research Chair in Forest and Global Change at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Dr. Baltzer, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me, Bob. What kind of changes are we seeing now in boreal forests from the intense wildfires like we saw this summer? We're seeing a number of really important changes. When we think about forest composition, northern boreal forests have been dominated by um, spruce, so black spruce and white spruce, with many other species mixed in. But what we're seeing is with more frequent and more intense fires, we're seeing shifts away from these spruce-dominated forests that have really traversed the, the northern forests toward forests dominated more by deciduous trees like aspen and birch, or where pine is present, like lodgepole pine and, and jack pine. So what is happening is when we have really deep burning into the soil organic layer, or where we have very frequent fires that don't allow the stands to reach reproductive maturity, these are the places that we see greatest vulnerability to change following these very large wildfires. Wow. So it's not just the trees themselves that are changing, it's the soil as well? Yeah, exactly. So so one of the things that we're seeing in the system as well is, you know, deeper burning into the soil layers. So part of the reason the boreal is such a stockpile of carbon, the main reason the boreal is such a stockpile of carbon is that the soils in these northern forests are so cold and wet, and so decomposition is incredibly slow, and the um, moss species that proliferate on the forest floor are able to grow upwards between fire-free intervals, accumulating carbon, and so you have these partially or even in some cases undecomposed moss bodies underneath uh, the green surface, and it grows upward. And so carbon is locked into the soils, and in some cases this is even frozen in place where we have permafrost soils. Now, typically in a fire, we'll see combustion of part of that new soil organic layer that was laid down in the last fire-free interval. But what we have seen in northern forests is that with these much deeper burning fires, that the fires are actually eating into older or legacy carbon stocks that were laid down in previous fire-free intervals. So this is suggesting we're seeing a change in the way these forests function and their ability to store and sequester carbon and provide that service for us. Another really important component of this is that we're seeing with with the big fire years like we had this year in 2023 and and many previous years here in Canada, we're seeing an increase in overwintering or zombie fires. Um, And these are fires that start in the summer and then smolder all winter long in the soils or in the tree stems and roots and basically lead to release of carbon nearly year round. So we see an increased frequency of these in conjunction with really large fire years and potentially with later burning fire seasons like we had last year in 2022, where there were late season fires into October and November. We saw quite a number of overwintering fires that that may have indeed contributed to the very early start to the fire season we saw this year. So if the species of trees are changing in the forest and the soils are changing, as you say, what will the boreal forest eventually look like? I think there are a lot of uncertainties, 
But what we're seeing right now is shifts away from spruce species that have supported key wildlife species like caribou toward more deciduous dominance or faster growing pine species. And this changes the way the system functions in terms of the habitats it provides. You know, for some species, this will be a a benefit and for other species, this will be a, a real challenge. And, you know, one thing I failed to mention earlier is that the most extreme change we're seeing is loss of forest cover entirely. So particularly in southern parts of the northern boreal, we're seeing these extreme fires leading to situations where we transition from forested to non-forested landscapes, so grasslands or shrublands. And so there is also the potential that we actually see reduction in forest cover as a consequence of these wildfires. What's that mean for the future of fire in the north? Well, grasslands also burn, but I'm not sure what the expectation is with with that, Bob, but certainly with an increase in deciduous cover, one of the predictions is that we may see this help to dampen some of the fire activity. But there's also the kind of flip side of that, that if things are hot and dry enough, that deciduous burns just as well as conifers. And so it really depends on the conditions for deciduous forests to act as good fuel breaks the fire conditions have to be moderate enough. Okay, so there might be less fire in the north, but only because we've lost the boreal forest as we know it today. Yeah, it's changing quite dramatically. Can we do anything about this? I mean, apart from stopping climate change? Certainly, as you discussed with Dr. Daniels previously, there is, like in the South, there is a history of fire suppression in the North. Not nearly as much forest management as we see in the South, so that's not as much of a player, but there is this this history of very effective fire suppression that, like in the South, has, has led to you know, fuel build up on the landscape to a lesser extent. And so there are conversations happening about how we help to reduce fuels on the landscape through, you know, forest management practices, so potentially through stand thinning, through prescribed burns done at the appropriate time. But it's a very big challenge in the north because of the remoteness of much of the northern boreal forest. So in the south, we have roads that people can get into many parts of the the forest. In the north, that's not the case. So there's a, a, a lot of really remote, difficult to access forest that management practices are simply not feasible to implement in those areas. It's just so huge covering such a wide area and and most of it's remote. So we just have to let nature take its course then. Yeah, I mean, these are solutions that may be um, helpful in protecting communities at the interface of, you know, the the wildland urban interface in the north, but it's not going to be a solution to the massive fires that we see in wilderness parts of, of the north. So how close are we to a tipping point where none of this is in our control? I think that's a really hard question to answer, but I I do think that the fact that this summer we were seeing fires that were so out of control across Canada, leading to such a, a remarkable amount of carbon loss and area burned and impacts to human communities, you know, I think that shows us that that 1.5 degree C is a threshold we really don't want to cross. This is what we can expect more and more as we approach that. And I think that there's not very many people here in Canada or in the countries that were impacted by our smoke that think that that's, you know, what we saw this summer is acceptable. And so we need to work really hard to avoid that. Dr. Baltzer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.
Jennifer Balter is a professor in forest ecology and the Canada Research Chair in Forest and Global Change at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link in our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.